This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. This is Larry Lessig. This is the third season of the podcast, Another Way. For much of this season, we focused on what we've called the POTUS One Project, our effort to frame a commitment by the presidential candidates to fundamental reform. But this week, we're going to continue a conversation I started with my colleague, Jason Harrow, about the Supreme Court case that we will be arguing on May 13th by telephone to the Supreme Court resolving finally the question whether presidential electors have a constitutional discretion to vote their conscience or whether they're obligated to vote as the state directs them through law. That's an important constitutional question. It's an important moral question. But it was a question that was very personal to the people that I will be speaking with today. Three of the electors who were fined from the state of Washington for voting their conscience at the Electoral College vote on December 19th, 2016. These electors are our clients. In the first case that uh, the court will hear, Chaaflo versus Washington. And then so in this podcast, we're going to hear something from them in their own words about why they were doing what they did. Stay tuned. Okay, so welcome to our electors, um, Brett Chifalo, um, Esther Dove, and L.J. Guerra. I'm so grateful for you being here. Let's start with the lead on our case. The case will be decided, uh, Chifalo v. Washington. Um, Brett, tell me a little bit about yourself. Um, nothing to do with the case, but just who are you? Well, um, I'm someone who's been involved in politics since I was 18 years old and had always been interested in the inner workings, uh, for me, of the Democratic Party. Um, I'm also someone who's, whose career is in technology and always been fascinated by computers and systems, and I'm currently a crisis and incident manager with a major technology company. Okay. And um, Dove, tell us a little bit about you. I have... Um done a lot of things in my life. I've walked across the country for world peace. I have um, been a mental health counselor. I now live at Esperanza, which is a senior living place in in Seattle, Washington. Wow. So, um, so you guys have been in the middle of the well, in the initial hotspot around this pandemic. Um, so, has uh, have, was your site hit by that? No, my my senior residence hasn't been hit by by um, COVID, but we the reason I'm on computer right now is because I'm at my church because they closed off our computer access at my building. So that's that's my story. Well, well I'm grateful for you being here, and LJ, um, you uh, are. Um, very different from the other two. Give us a little background of like, first of all, you're going to have to tell us your age because that's striking and a little bit of background of what you're doing right now. Um, I am 23 years old amongst the three of us. I believe at the time I was the youngest elector to default at 19 years old, which is, you know, I remember one of like the biggest questions that always got asked was how does a 19 year old get elected? Uh, So that's something that is definitely unique with me. Uh, Currently I work as a 
public affairs manager for a government organization. Um, and by that, I work in the military, which I, you know, I don't talk about often just because I try to keep my, my military side separate from, from anything political, you know, up until I, you know, I finally do my service and I've, I've finished serving, which will probably be a while from now. Right. But then you've you've served in two very important ways. You, one, serve, have served in the military, but secondly, you served here as an elector. Okay, so you three electors um, were joined by a fourth who also voted contrary to their pledge, but um, the fourth is not part of our case. Um, uh, do, do you, did you guys talk to that elector too, or tell us um, what connection you had with him? So Robert Satyakum was the fourth elector who, uh, and I'm sure Dove and, and LJ also had conversations, but in my initial round, after getting elected elector, I was calling all the rest of the electors to discuss many, many things. They were hour-long conversations. And Robert Satyakum, his, his stance was basically that Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton were identical, and he couldn't vote for either of them morally or ethically, and really had no interest in any any approach to protect the country from any particular candidate. He was simply, it was a simple stance for him, um, which is his prerogative under the Constitution, in my opinion. Yeah. Okay. So so the three of you um, were nominated, to, you were chosen to be electors. When exactly did that happen in the course of the 2016 election? Brett, when did you take that? So uh, it happened in, uh, if memory serves correctly, early May um, for us at what are called the Congressional District Caucuses. Washington State has a caucus process that I won't go into, but uh, it contains various stages, and uh, you're elected in that year either as a Hillary delegate or a Bernie Sanders delegate. Um, all three of us were Bernie Sanders delegates. At that point, you could stand for a national delegate to go into the big national convention, or and or you could also run for elector. The Washington State Democratic Party is one of the only parties that that allows everyday party members to choose the people who serve as electors to the Democrat wins in that state. And so uh, I won um, in the second congressional district. And uh, I don't recall the districts that Dove and LJ won, but their situations were similar in the process of getting elected. And so, um, Dove, had you ever thought about running as an elector before this election? I've, it feels like I've thought about being an elector all of my life because I found out about the Electoral College in junior high school. And I thought, gosh, I'd like to do that someday. So you spent many years thinking about this idea of becoming an elector. Very true. And have you been part of the Democratic Party or have you been like associated with the Democratic Party as an activist for many years? No, I, um, I actually was a communist for a long time. And, um, and then I decided that I needed to um, take part in the democratic process. And it was probably um, from when I was about 50 on that I thought about becoming being uh, being in the Democratic Party. And so that's what I have done, been doing. Okay. And then um, obviously, LJ, you did not think about being an elector before this last election because you obviously couldn't have. But what led you to think about entering into the contest to become an elector this time? 
I think one of the things that made me specifically jump into the running for it was seeing the individuals were there that were there and realizing I wanted, um, first of all, my generation to be represented, um, people from my background to be represented and, you know, my district to be properly represented. Uh, so when I went up there and I was given the option, it was just kind of, you know, I really want to be able to represent my district appropriately and show, I guess you could say that, you know, the young people are still out here, you know, people from rural Hispanic regions, we are out here, we're part of this. That's kind of what caused me to step up and say, I want to go for this. And I, I think that's part of the reason why I was chosen at the end. So um, when you ran to be a delegate, I mean, to be an elector, at some stage, Washington law says you're supposed to pledge um, to support the nominee of the party. Um, tell us about that. Let's start with LJ. For that, I do remember that really clearly. I remember receiving an email that was basically a piece of paper that stated we were required to vote the way that basically required to vote for Hillary Clinton. Um, I actually still have that document saved. Um, and I remember seeing that and it was just kind of like a very big, huh, that didn't sit right with me. So this document you received before the election or after the election? Um, this was received sometime in the primaries. I believe it was right after, I can't recall if I received the document right after Clinton had been chosen or if it was prior to her being chosen. I'd have to look at the timestamp on the email that I received. I still have that email documented, but um, that I, I do remember receiving that and being told we had to sign that agreement and it just not sitting very well with me at the time. At the time you received this form asking you to make a pledge to support Hillary Clinton, it wasn't clear necessarily that Hillary Clinton was going to be the nominee. No, most people thought that she would. But um, regardless, you were going to be a Democratic elector. When you signed up to be a Democratic elector, did you think that you were going to vote for somebody other than a Democrat when you actually came to vote in the Electoral College? I think for me at the time, it was um, when I received that, it was more for me the fact that this document didn't sit right with me, if that makes sense. It felt like it wasn't, like that. it just didn't seem like it was right for us to have received that. Mm -hmm. And I think for me, that's kind of what it came down to. At that point in time, before Brett had reached out to me, I was just going with what we were told to do. And then when Brett reached out to me and he was like, hey, here I am, somebody else who had that exact same feeling as you, somebody else who saw this document and was like, this is not right. This is something that, you know, should be addressed. It was kind of like, this is something that we have the opportunity to change. Let, let me just ask uh, Brett to, to comment on the same thing. I mean, you know, we could have a theoretical, you could, I can imagine that you and I, if we had met in May of 2016, Brett, could have had a theoretical argument about or a conversation about what electors are. But what I'm trying to understand is, as you went into the election in the fall of 2016, 
where the two candidates were Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton. And then there were two um, third party candidates, obviously, but those were the two major party candidates. Um, did you have any expectation you were going to do anything other than vote for Hillary Clinton when you became when you actually went to the Electoral College in December? This is a question I get asked a lot. Um, and the, the, the way I see it, the way I remember it, the way I truly believe it is when I was talking to Levi, when I was talking to Dove, when I was talking to all the other uh, electors in Washington State, and even a few in Colorado, I was talking about our responsibility as electors. And I was talking about Ray versus Blair and the questioning whether we were at truly locked in to voting for the nominee we're elected for, we were elected for. That being said, there was never at any point any concrete plan or decision made in my mind to vote for anyone other than Hillary Clinton. Before the election. Correct. Um, I'm not going to say I didn't talk about it. We talked about it. I talked about zillions of different options and different scenarios. You know, candidates dying, candidate, you know, all these different scenarios that have happened in the Electoral College or could be affected uh, with the Electoral College. I had thought out and I had talked about and I had discussed, but there was no plan, for me at least, until that night of the general election. Uh, it was all talk, theory, conversation, and trying to understand what our true responsibilities were. And it came to a head on general election night. I mean, that's when theory became reality. Yeah. Dov, how about you? Um, when you signed up to be a Democratic elector, did you have any doubt in your mind that when you went to vote um, in December, you were going to vote for Hillary Clinton? I didn't think that Hillary Clinton was going to become the um, candidate of the Democratic Party. So I hadn't really thought about voting for Hillary Clinton, but um, but as before, just before the election, it became clear that um, I would have to think of something else because if Hillary Clinton didn't win the Electoral College, then I would have to do something else. And so I didn't think at the time that I was made an elector that I would have any second thoughts about voting for Hillary Clinton, although I didn't really want to vote for Hillary Clinton. Well, that's uh, just to be clear, you you originally wanted to vote for Bernie Sanders, right? That's right. Okay, so when Bernie was not the nominee, but you were going to be the Democratic uh, elector, um, you know, at least from the in the world I was uh, living in in 2016, most people thought Hillary Clinton was going to win. So but what you're saying is if you shared that view, she was going to win um, having become the nominee. There was no doubt you were going to vote for Hillary Clinton when it came to the electoral vote in December. That's true. Okay. All right. So, I mean, this is really important because, um, you know, one of the issues in this case is that there's a big difference in the statute between the obligation to take a pledge, which the statute requires to support the nominee of the party, and the actual regulation of your vote, which is a different issue. It says you must, if you don't vote in a certain way, you get fined. And we've maintained, because that's what I understood from the very beginning, that when you made your pledge, you made your pledge honestly. You, you honestly pledged that you were going to vote um, for the Democratic nominee who you might have wanted Bernie Sanders to be the nominee. Many people obviously did. But Hillary Clinton was the nominee. So you intended in that pledge to, to do what you promised. But the election changed everything. On election night, when it was clear Hillary Clinton had won the popular vote but had not was not going to win in the Electoral College, that's when all of these conversations began. Is that right, Brad? I remember you telling me that specifically. 
Yes. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, I'd been talking to some Colorado electors, too. And the reason it was Colorado is because Colorado is one of the only other states that selects electors the same way that Washington does. And I had been talking to uh, someone named Michael Baca, um, who we all know is part of the the uh, co-case, I guess. I don't know what the term is for it. Um, and I was working nights at an incident management center uh, when general election happened. And I got on the phone with Michael Baca at about midnight. And we talked for an hour on how to get Hillary Clinton elected through the Electoral College, came up empty, and decided that the only option at that point was to uh, take, a, take a stand against Trump and trying to only make it so he got 269 electoral votes. Okay, so if he got, if he got 269, what would happen then? So what happens then, per the Constitution, is the House of Representatives then when they meet to count the electoral votes. They count the electoral votes, and if they get to 269 and no above, then um, each delegation, each delegation, not state, but delegation in the House of Representatives gets a single vote towards president. Um, And they get to choose, not from the top two electoral vote getters, but the top three. And in that case, uh, each delegation will place one vote, and someone has to get is it 25 or 26? It's either 25 or 26 state delegations. 26. Uh, 26, thank you. And um, if they get that, that person becomes president. If nobody gets that, and the Senate at the same time has has done the same thing for vice president, the vice president, becomes, it's incredibly complicated. Yeah, it gets complicated. Basically, the House of Representatives votes. Okay, so but to, but to be clear, so the first thing you thought about is, okay, you guys are behind uh, in the Electoral College, Hillary Clinton is though she's won the popular vote. Was there some maneuver to, to get um, her to win in the Electoral College? You know, it, it, we've, we've since discovered, this is really interesting history, practically in every election, but really quite aggressively in, 20, in 2000, um, people tried to persuade uh, the electors um, who were supporting uh, George Bush to switch to support Al Gore because they wanted to make an argument that the winner of the popular vote should win the electoral vote. So when you first recognize that there was this inversion, Hillary Clinton won the popular vote, but she had lost the electoral college vote, did you at that stage think, well, maybe what we should do is try to persuade some Republican electors to switch sides that they were supporting the person who actually won the popular vote? Absolutely. Uh, Michael Baca and I discussed that for at least an hour, if not more. But what it, what we kept coming back to is, given the toxicity that was thrown against Hillary Clinton during the election, especially on the Republican side, and given that most electors are party insiders, we didn't see any math that would get us one Hill, one Republican elector to switch for Hillary Clinton, let alone the 37 required. The math just didn't for us. We didn't see any any way to do that. And we were sad about it, but at the end of the day, we were trying to save you know, the country in our mind. So sometimes you have to give up on the best plan or I mean the uh, best outcome and go for the least bad one. Yeah. Um, LJ, did, 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 did you think about what the strategy would be that might be able to get Hillary Clinton to win in the Electoral College? I believe a lot of that... Um you know, Brett is the individual that specifically should be credited for a lot of the thought and a lot of the work that went into that. You know, I think he was 
probably the main person who rallied us together and brought us together and um, put in most of the like the thought into everything and really figured out a way to get plans put into action. And so I think Brett would probably be the individual to credit a lot for that. Um, of course, there was some thought that like I would put into it, but Brett, honestly, he was genuinely, I think the person who did a lot of like um, the planning and gathering and reaching out to individuals during that time. But did you, did you have any contact with other electors outside of the Colorado electors? Did you know anybody else who was an elector? Yeah, uh, I, there were a few smatterings of them in other states. Um, but for example, like New York and California, those are both electors that are chosen by very, very, very elite people in the party. Um, so most of them were not necessarily as, as open to talking. So, you know, actually, funny enough, I had I did have contact with the Alaskan Democratic electors, um, and uh, that's that's all I can remember. I don't remember having contact as of general election night. Obviously, as Hamilton electors rolled out, we ended up having contacts with almost everybody. But uh, before the general election, no, it was pretty much just Colorado. LJ, um, yes, I think uh, for me before the. As Brett was saying, before the general election, um, other than, you know, maybe a few conversations with Brett here and there, I hadn't really talked with any other electors. Um, I do recall after general election, I did speak with two electors that are were both uh, for Utah, um, both Donald Trump electors, uh, Republican electors in the state of Utah that I had talked to after the general election. And so did you talk to them about the idea of supporting Hillary Clinton or this third strategy, which we're going to talk about in a second? We talked to, our conversation was more about the third strategy, specifically because they were Republican um, electors. So the first strategy was um, definitely not a plan that they were very open to. Mm -hmm. Um, And and Dov, I take it you didn't have a different conversation with any elector or anybody you thought you might be able to persuade to flip from Donald Trump to Hillary Clinton? No, I didn't. I, the people that I spoke with, well, I spoke with a bunch of Republican, well, I communicated with Republican electors in Washington state. And my idea was, can we all just get along? It wasn't, can I flip anybody? Mm-hmm. Okay. So this brings out, I mean, the reason I'm asking this question, it brings out another really important point which I think people sometimes miss when they think about the so-called faithless elector problem. Um, And we're going to get around to why that's a terrible, terrible way to talk about this. Um, And that's that um, it's really unlikely that you're ever going to imagine flipping somebody from one side to the other, because obviously people go into an election committed to their candidate. And, and obviously the, the electors from the candidate who is not, who have, who has not won the electoral college, the, electors who were supporting Hillary Clinton were not on their own going to flip the result of anything. But instead, what you guys then eventually decided you would do in this thing called the Hamilton um, uh, Electors Project was to try to pull together a coalition of both Democratic and Republican electors who would decide to vote for somebody other than Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton. Uh, first of all, let's start with the name. Um, Brett, where does, where does the idea of Hamilton electors come from? So one of the, in my hours and hours of studying 
before the general election. One of the things I hit on is, is one of the things that really told me, at least to me and spoke to my heart about what the founding fathers were really looking at with the Electoral College was Hamilton 68, the Federalist 68 written by Hamilton which talked about uh, there essentially being a litmus test for presidential candidates coming through the Electoral College, that they not be a demagogue, that they not that they be qualified, and that they not be controlled by foreign powers. And it seemed to be the Founding Fathers speaking to us through time and practically defining what Donald Trump represented to me, and it seemed like many other Democratic electors. Um, so that's where it came from. Um, it didn't hurt that Hamilton the Musical was pretty big at that point, but that was an afterthought. That was certainly not the primary uh, decision maker there. And so inspired by Hamilton, then you and um, Michael Baca were the initial organizers, um, began to talk to people about trying to recruit electors. So like, what was the game plan? What was the, what was the strategy you thought was going to work here? Well, to be honest, we started on a shoestring and just Michael and I are just regular folks. So it was a scramble because there was so much noise out there right after the election when you talked about uh, people contacting their electors. That was actually a big problem for us. Um, People were emailing and every one out of 10 was a threat to these Republican electors not to vote for Trump. I don't know about you, but if I get hundreds of letters and dozens of them are threats trying to tell me what to do, I might not be very open-minded. That's why what we were trying to do was say, hey, we're electors too. Let's have a talk about this, you know? Um, and, uh, and yeah, and we ended up organizing a, a group of skilled volunteers who, as much as I appreciate Levi's credit, um, a lot of the organizing work was done by people who were behind the scenes and, and had skills in these areas and gave up hundreds of hours a week in some cases. Um, to, to, to get it done. And we called as many electors as we had, and got out in as much media as we could. Um, and honestly, sometimes when I felt like I didn't have any energy left, it's Levi. Levi is the one who kept me going. I've rarely met someone as inspiring as, as LJ, sorry, LJ. Because if she can stand up and say what she did at 19 years old, I have no excuse. I had no excuse at the time to slow down. So between the two between the two campaigns, I mean the two states, Colorado and um, Washington, um, did you divide up the electors you were going to try to reach out to? Did you assign people like the job of calling the Texas electors or calling the um, uh, Kentucky electors? I mean, how did you actually t- practically organize it? Uh, at some points, it was that um, honestly, building an organization this large in forty days meant it was controlled chaos at sometimes. Uh, I'm just going to be honest with you. We had plans and we had processes, but they were haphazard and last minute. Um, So we did try to divide it up as much as possible. It wasn't any clean division. It's not like Levi had Virginia and I had, you know, Idaho. Uh, We just kind of got together each day and whoever was available and whoever had time, we would assign them a list of electors that they would call. They'd always try to call with compassion. That's the one thing we made sure of. This was never going to be an attack on an elector. This was trying to get to their better nature, especially since we heard from many of them that they were concerned about Donald Trump, too. And so, LJ, so what do you remember about the experience of talking to these electors that you reached out to to try to persuade them on this third-way strategy? 
It's very nerve wracking, um, especially I think as a 19 year old who is very new to a lot of this. I don't think a lot of where we ended up was not in any way, shape or form where I thought we were going to go when I was chosen as an elector. And so it was just a lot of, am I saying the right things? Am I, am I doing a good job? Am I, you know, representing well? Am I doing what I'm supposed to? Am I doing it right? You know, I was very, I was a very young individual. And so it was a lot of, you know, trying to ensure I was doing a good job, I guess you could say. Um, just because it was something that I had been thrown in, a lot of us, I think, had been thrown into, and it it wasn't the outcome we had thought was going to happen. So, And so, I mean, I imagine that many of the times you reached uh, a Republican elector and, and said what you were thinking about, they would just either hang up or be very aggressive. But tell me a little bit about some of the most sympathetic Republican electors you might have spoken to. I think for me, one of the most sympathetic electors was one of the ones that I spoke to in Utah. Um, I'd have to look up her name. We don't need names. That's fine. We can keep their privacy here. Yeah, I can't exactly remember her name, but I do remember she was a very kind lady who um, she specifically sat down. And when I talked with her, she was 100 percent willing to listen, I think mostly because she also had kids who were my age and she wanted to, I guess she didn't see me. I think that was one thing as well with being so young is that when you're as young as I was, when I got into um, the Hamilton electors, that some people will, it's very easy for people to brush you off because of your age, but she sat down and she really listened to me and what I had to say and really kind of um, at the end of the day, kind of took it took what I had to say and didn't brush it off like a lot of um, other individuals I founded. And so did she say that she was being contacted by many, many people asking the same thing? Um, I believe that she had been receiving a lot of emails, but she wanted to, at the end of the day, she made the choice to uh, stick with um, Donald Trump. Okay. And, and Dove, did you, were you part of these conversations, these telephone calls? No, I wasn't part of those telephone calls. And so what So what was the work that you were doing in this whole crazy period leading up to the vote? Um, so I was trying to meet with Republican, Republican electors from Washington State to see what, um, whether they felt the same way that I did, that, that Donald Trump wasn't the proper elector. And I organized a meeting of, um, of electors, Republican electors, and hardly anybody came. Just a couple of people came. One person came who was my counterpart in my congressional district, and another person came who was from another elect, um, congressional district. So it was just two people that I got to talk with. And when you would speak to this, um, these Republicans, um, I mean, was there hesitation about the idea of Donald Trump becoming president, or were these people who were just completely committed to the idea of this this man being our president? They weren't completely they weren't completely committed to Donald Trump, as I remember it, and that's probably why they were willing to meet with me. So, no, they weren't completely Donald Trump people. Okay, Brett, um, what what was the conversations that you were having here? Uh, the conversations I was having uh, were with many different people across the country. First, quickly, I want to say Dove doing that with the Republican electors in Washington was amazing. 
it was something none of a, none of the rest of us had thought to do. We were so focused on just directing that the Republican electors got elected, going and trying to find out what the what the thoughts were of the Republicans who didn't get placed in that position was uh, provided insight. Um, so for the calls I made, many hangups, many people angry, many people calling me a communist, but so many amazing conversations with people who had true concerns about Donald Trump, but were conflicted because, you know, these are people who have been part of the Republican Party sometimes since Nixon and, and almost always since Reagan. And these people are held very high in high regard in their mind. And a lot of them really wanted to find a way to not vote for Donald Trump, but at the same time, they were afraid, what if it's just me? What if it's just me and one other person? You know, what if there's no point to it? And I went through all of this and I'm exiled from my community and my hobby and what I do in my free time. It was never an easy, easy choice. Even if they hated Donald Trump, it's still a very difficult choice. Now, did all of these electors believe that they actually were entitled to do something other than what the law said? Because obviously... You know, in Washington in particular, there's a pretty aggressive, there was a pretty aggressive regulation that said you have to vote, and if you don't vote, you're going to be fined. But did, did people wonder whether they had that freedom, Brett? Yes. Um, in fact, there was a state, and I don't remember which one it is. I think it's Georgia, but I, I could be totally wrong. There's a state where it would be, they could charge you with a felony. We didn't even call that state because <laughs> we weren't willing to ask people to put themselves up for a felony to do this. Because we really didn't think that was fair, but uh, but yes, people did bring this up. Um, they brought up the the their, and I would always direct them to Hamilton sixty eight. I would always say, take a glance at Hamilton sixty eight. See if you believe if Donald Trump stands up to those qualifications that the founding fathers gave to us. And we'll be honest, in this country, the Republican Party tends to lead more towards what the founding fathers were trying to tell us, originalism, federalism. And so I would tell them to read that. They're telling you what they want from you. And in a kind way, not in an accusatory way. Uh, I try to be as kind and understanding as possible. Okay, but, but I mean, there are two separate issues here. One is like, who, what kind of person should be president? But the second question is, what kind of power do presidential electors have? And obviously, the position the state of Washington has taken in, in Colorado and, and you know, the brief signed by 44 states, um, the position they've all taken is that electors are just cogs in a wheel. They're not there to do anything other than to simply reflect what the, uh, what the vote in the state is. And if they do anything else beyond that, um, then they are unfaithful or faithless electors. Um, there must have been a period where you were struggling internally with whether you were being faithless or whether your job was to um, simply do what the voters in Washington had done. Dove, what did, you, what did you feel about that? My feeling was that since I had heard about the Electoral College from, from junior high school, my feeling was that I was supposed to vote my conscience and I was supposed to, um, and that vote was going to be completely independent of the Democratic Party, of Washington State, even of the federal government, it was going to be my my um, my considered opinion. And uh, so, when I got that 
notice in the mail about um, I was going to be fined. I thought, what is this? <laughs> and I, I, did, I didn't believe that it was possible for them to do this to me. So, but then I, again, if I hadn't signed it, I wouldn't be allowed to um, vote my opinion. So I felt very conflicted about that. Okay, let me let me restate the question then. Okay. Okay, so LJ, you were instructed um, by the law of Washington that you were supposed to vote uh, for Hillary Clinton, even though Hillary Clinton was not going to win, and even though um, you might have done something different to bring about a victory for somebody who is better than Donald Trump. When you when you read this instruction, where you were told this is what you should do, did you wonder to yourself? Am I allowed to do something different? Did you wonder, was it my right to actually exercise my discretion? I think uh, similar to Dove, I and I think a lot of young individuals, um, when they do learn about the Electoral College, and a lot of people in general, when they learn about the Electoral College, especially the reason why I say this is because there was a video that was going around that um, I remember a lot of people sharing that stated basically that the elector uh, that the electors were like the last stand and that they could vote how they wanted to and so i think a lot of people have that misconception that electors are allowed to do that and so many people don't even realize that there are, are rules that are stopping electors from doing that yeah i mean i mean that's the whole question you know the our case is addressing whether those rules are constitutional or not but i think that what's striking i hadn't realized this until i'd started researching for this case but the surveys that are done of electors show that the vast majority of electors actually believe that they have a freedom, a discretion. Um, but the vast majority of Americans think that they have no discretion at all. And, and so, Brett, you were at the middle of like explaining this in many contexts, I know, on, the, on television as well as to people directly. What was your experience in that conversation? So my experience is being a giant nerd, and I am, as soon as I was elected elector, I dove into everything I could find. The Senate debates the about the uh, uh, 20, 21st Amendment, I think. It's been a while. Um, Hamilton, you know, uh, Hamilton 68, everything I could put my hands on. And I soon realized that it was clear that the Constitution intends electors to have complete freedom to vote for who they think is the best candidate. And that, that is constitutionally crisp and clear. While on the opposite side, the American people and the American culture have been lulled into believing that it's simply a, it's simply a, uh, we simply go in there to push a button and that's it. We're, we're, we're just automated systems. And, and what I always use the metaphor for when I was going out and talking about this is this is like the, uh, you know, pull in case of emergency lever that was sitting there for, 100, 200 years. It's gotten dusty and people have forgotten about it, but it doesn't mean it still doesn't work when you pull it. Yeah, yeah, I think this is an important distinction, right? Um, I mean, there are many people at the framing, and, and, and Hamilton 68 is the most famous, but there are other people too who had this image of, you know, a bunch of white male property holders getting together as electors and just reflecting and deliberating on who they thought the best candidate was going to be and then voting for that person. And, you know, that might be what the public wanted, but it wasn't necessarily what the public wanted. Um, um, and so at the one extreme, there's this view of total 
independence and freedom. And then the other extreme, which is what the states are arguing, is that you're just cogs. You're just, you have to vote as you're told to vote. And indeed, Colorado has changed its law so that now when you hand in your vote, if you haven't marked the right box, the only box there, um, then your vote is uh, discarded and you are considered to have vacated the office and somebody else is appointed in your place. So it's an automatic system. But the third view is this is this kind of safety valve view or pull in case of emergency view, which says that, you know, most times you're going to go ahead and vote as you guys intended when you first were appointed to vote for the candidate that wins in your state. But if something goes wrong, then we need humans uh, in the middle to make a decision of like what makes the most sense. And and in a certain sense, you guys were trying to work out what what could make sense in that context. Levi, uh, uh, LJ, what, did, did you want to comment on that? Um, one thing I thought that was interesting, I remember I was in college at the time, I was sitting down and I remember listening to like the next table over and it was a conversation that I would constantly hear over and over from other individuals. But after like the general election, people making the comment that, you know, we still have the electoral college, we still have the electoral college, you know, it's not over yet. We still have the electoral college. We still have electors. And I remember sitting there and that being constantly brought up. And I thought that was always interesting. Yeah. I mean, it's one thing to bring that up in the context of an election like 2016, where there's a clear reason why there's something troubling with the outcome. I mean, you know, we could say, and I'm sure most people um, who are in the Democratic Party would say that, you know, what was really terrible about 2016 was the candidate Donald Trump. But independent of the candidate, the troubling thing about 2016, it was one of these inverted elections where, like 2000, um, the person who won the popular vote hadn't won the Electoral College. So that's what sort of put it into a box where I think many people began to think of, well, is there an alternative? Is there some way to fix this, this gap between the public's uh, view and, and who actually got elected, which is what triggered your conversations. But we can think of lots of other cases where it's even clearer. I mean, you know, in our history, the most free, the, the largest number of um, anomalous votes is the way we try to refer to it neutrally. Um, has been in cases where a candidate dies. Um, and the most uh, prominent of those was Horace Greeley in 1872. And he had, six, he had won 66 electoral votes. And 63 of them voted for somebody else. Three of them voted for Horace Greeley because they thought they were pledged to Horace Greeley. And the Congress rejected their votes because they said you can't vote for a dead man. But the point is, in that case, what we would want, presumptively, is that the electors who are going to vote for Horace Greeley, but now can't vote for Horace Greeley, to exercise a discretion about who should we vote for now, given what our um, the people who elected us wanted. Like, we are now representatives of those people, and given the changed circumstances, how should we react to it? And and I think that when I heard you, um, I think I heard Brett talk about this in, in, a, in, a, um, in, a, online, in a television context. Um, what was striking to me is that in a certain sense, it sounded like you felt like you were actually better representing the people who had elected you by trying to elect a Republican than you would have by voting for Hillary Clinton. Is that is that the way you were thinking about it? Um, let's start with Brett on that. Uh, yeah. I mean, uh, the way I was thinking about it was the best service I could provide my constituents in the 2nd Congressional District of Washington was by trying to stop Donald Trump from getting in the position, into that position. Um, I knew the majority of Washingtonians were terrified by Trump, did not support him. Um, and I thought the best way to serve at that point was trying to get someone that 
wouldn't impact their lives as negatively as Donald Trump was. It was harm reduction at that point. And I think that that was, in my understanding and my belief, the best way to serve my constituents. I know a lot of people disagree, but I, I truly believe it. And Dove, what, what did you think? I thought that the people that had elected me as an elector um, trusted me to use my best instincts and to um, find find the person who would best represent the people. And I don't think that they wanted me to vote for, well, I think that a lot of people wanted me to vote for Hillary Clinton, but a lot of the people that I was I was elected by were Bernie people. And I think that they wanted me to get us out of a hot situation with Trump. So they were looking for a way out of um, avoiding to elect Donald Trump. Um, and that's what, uh-huh. and LJ? Uh, for me, I believe when, um, during that time, when I had made my speech that got me elected as an elector for my congressional district, um, one of the things I had stated was that I was going to represent my congressional district as best as I could. And when it came down to it, I went and I went out into the community and I talked to people and asked them what they wanted in, you know, a presidential candidate. Um, I found that a lot of individuals that I talked to when I went out uh, to talk to individuals was that a lot of them, they, like a lot of, uh, cause my, my region is a, it's um, more of a red, where I'm from is a, it's more of a Republican region. A lot of them, even as Republicans, you know, may not have necessarily liked Donald Trump, but he was, you know, the option that was given to them. And I found that a lot of people, you know, would have liked somebody else, but he was the Republican choice. But um, at the end of the day, for me, it was going through and trying to represent my region as best as possible and finding somebody who fit what they were wanting to do, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Okay, so then you guys had lots of conversations working many, many hours leading up to the vote, which I believe, as I remember, was um, December 19th. Was that? That was it, right? That's right. Um, and so, um, and in that process, again, to make sure everybody understands the strategy, you were clear Hillary Clinton was not going to win because there was not a gaggle of 37 Republican electors who were willing to say, I'm going to vote for the Democrat because the Democrat won the popular vote. So the best option from your perspective was not on the table. The strategy, the plan was if you can get enough electors from the Republican Party to join you to deny Donald Trump the majority, then the candidate that the uh, House would have a chance to vote among would include Donald Trump, Hillary Clinton, and some third candidate, um, the person who received the most of these alternative electoral votes. Um, and so you um, you were working to get them to vote with you. Why was it important that there be Democrats as part of this um, strategy, as as opposed to just asking thirty seven Republicans to vote for somebody other than Donald Trump? What was the what was the symbolic importance of making it something that seemed to have both Democrats and Republicans? Brett, let's start with you. It wasn't just symbolic. Um, one of the things that that we heard of very early on is that there were, there were, the Republican Party was lobbying all Republican electors to make sure they stayed in line. 
um, and I don't have direct proof of this, but I heard it from multiple sources. I tend to believe it. Um, and one of the things they were telling him is, this is a trick. This is a trick. None of them are going to vote for the Republican like they say they do. they're going to. So it was about, if I'm asking, if I'm asking these Republican electors, please do this for the good of the country. Put country before party, please. I have to be willing to do that myself. If I'm unwilling to put country before party, then I, I have no position to ask them. Was that is that how you thought about it, uh, LJ? Uh, yes, I very much, you know, I'm very much an individual who you do what you say you're going to do. And so I would say that, yeah, that was very much, Brett put it perfectly. And Dove, did you, did you experience it like that? Yes, I, I agree with, with Brett. Okay, so we got the idea that both sides were going to have to sacrifice something. Most of the uh, people who were thinking about an alternative to Donald Trump that might appeal to many Republicans were thinking about um, uh, Governor Kasich from uh, Ohio. Uh, you guys voted for um, Colin Powell. So what was, the, what was the thinking that led to you voting for Colin Powell? Brad? So I, I'm going to let, I think, LJ take this, but um, up until the day of the election, almost everybody was thinking it was either going to be Mitt Romney or, or Kasich. Um, but by the time we walked up to you know the steps of the Capitol and it was time to walk into that room to vote, we knew our plan had failed. And then all three of us got together and had a conversation. I'll toss it over to Lee. To, to... LJ, what happened then? Uh, for me, I had, like I had mentioned earlier, I had gone out into my community and talked to the individuals that were there. And the main question was, what is it that you want in a president? And I think the top three things that I received was um, somebody who's well-respected on both sides, somebody with military service, and somebody who ha who cares about education. And Colin Powell was um, one of the individuals who fit everything that I was looking for when I was looking at candidates. So you suggested Colin Powell. Dove, uh, Dove, you too were a Colin Powell supporter. That's right. And was it for similar reasons or what was the what was motivating you for him? I knew that Colin Powell was re respected by people on both sides of the question. So I chose him to, to be the one that I would select. Okay, so you make this decision before you walk into the Capitol. Now, you know, what's striking about the events in Colorado is there's an extraordinary video, which we're going to actually refer to in our reply brief, and um, it's available. It's going to be on our website. But there's an extraordinary video of the event, and it's kind of a meeting in the rotunda, and there's looks like about 100 people sitting on chairs as they're voting. What does it look like for you? Where, where are you voting, and do people know what you're going to do, or what, what's actually the, the, uh, the way this plays out? Um, Dove, why don't you tell me that? When, when we went to the, um, the State House, we were taken to a room. I've worked in the State House before. We were taken to a room that what had room for about 150 people total. And um, then there were spectators, and then there were we electors. So this, this, I felt comfortable in the room, and there was a little bit of folder roll to 
before we actually got the paper to vote. And uh, when we got the paper to vote, I just marked, I wrote down the names of the people that I wanted. What about your pen? Oh, I can't remember. What what was with the pen? Yeah, it, we were all issued these uh, feather pens uh, to, oh. to sign the forms, and doves didn't work. <laughs> and she had to borrow uh, the gentleman's next to hers. And we're all kind of, there's a picture actually of us all smiling and grinning. And it's only because, you know, we're, we're dealing with a broken pen here at, at the place where you're the president is getting elected. It was just a, a, a moment of levity in a very serious situation. But when you say there's a lot of folder art, do you, do you mean that, that, I mean, there are 12 electors who were going to vote, right? Um, do you mean that they knew that you were not going to vote for Hillary Clinton? Or was there something else going on? No, people did not know that I wasn't going to vote for Hillary Clinton. Um, I hadn't really made that public. And so I was feeling uncomfortable about that. And I actually, up until the moment that I wrote down what I wrote down, I didn't know what I was going to do. Hmm. But in the end, I wrote down um, Colin Powell and Susan Collins, who's on the outs now, I guess. Yeah. Um uh, Brett, people must have known what you were going to do. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And just to give you a little broader understanding of what it looked like that day, uh, I got there a few hours early and there were already hundreds of demonstrators there covering the Capitol steps, covering the internal steps. They took us into a room with the Secretary of State, who, while she's a Republican and I disagree with her quite a bit, she treated us with utmost respect, even knowing what I was going to do. Um, and then uh, as Levi and as LJ and Dove mentioned, we, we kind of got around in a circle and had a quick conversation talking about who we thought we were going to vote for. And uh, when one of them mentioned Colin Powell, I realized he's the perfect choice um, for this. I, I hadn't gone into the Capitol building thinking about him at all. And we also decided that, hey, you know, let's, let's show extra respect for, for Senator Clinton for Secretary Clinton, and you know, let's let's pick a uh, woman who we think would make a great president, and and place a vice presidential vote for them. Um, so yeah, but everybody knew what I was going to do. Uh, but they still treated us with respect and and held a unlike Colorado, held a very respectful and and constitutional meeting. And LJ, did they? Um did the uh, other electors try to engage with you about what you were going to do or try to persuade you to vote for Hillary Clinton? Uh, not really. I don't think I don't think I really had a lot of conversations with the individuals that were there. Once again, I think that might have also been just because people, of course, they knew what I was planning on doing. They knew I think I was probably one of the more vocal individuals in the state of Washington. I know that a lot of people probably knew who I was when I had came up. And I think that a lot of individuals just kind of didn't want to, you know, I, I try to figure out how to word it. I'm sorry. Uh, but basically it was just, there wasn't a lot of interaction with the other electors, um, especially about politics. There was very few conversations about that at all. So the picture again that, you know, Hamilton seemed to fantasize about, that you all would just sit around a table and sort of brainstorm about who the right candidate would be. That that's not at all what you experienced when you went into that capital, into that uh, into that room. 
Um, and and so when you voted, um, how did you actually physically vote? Did you have to sign individual forms, or I mean, how did they know who each person voted for? Dove, how did that happen? It seems to me that there were pieces of paper in the folder that they gave us, and the pieces of paper had um, blank spaces on it where we could write the name of the person that we were going to vote for. Mm. And so th that's what I remember. Do you, do you remember something different? Brett, was that um, or LJ? Yeah, basically in the folder, they had a, a very fancy notarized uh, form. Again, very different than Colorado and their little pieces of paper. But also, I wanted to ask you to tell us about Colorado. Uh, <laughs> um, absolutely. So they were, they were big, fancy pieces of paper that were very calligraphized, if that's a word. And uh, there was one for president and one for vice president, separate ones. Those got turned in, sent up to the chair, the elected chair of the electors, counted. And then I think it's something like six or seven lists of all the votes um, have to be signed by all the electors. So it's just a lot of signing your name over and over with a quill pen. But it was a beautiful room, all marble. You know, back back from the 1800s, it's, it's a beautiful room. And did did the did the audience participate? Did the audience cheer or, or get angry when that happened? Happened or what? What was the audience's reaction to it? There was a moment where um, we were all allowed to kind of uh, say our piece, like just make a comment. It was kind of comment time for electors, and there were some mumblings in the crowd when a couple of us spoke. But other than that, I, I don't remember anything. But uh, LJ, do you remember anything like that? I don't remember anything particular from the crowd. I just remember one thing that was unique about our situation was how many people were there. There was like a big, very big outcome of individuals who had shown up. And that was um, not usual. I remember one of the individuals who worked there who was just like, wow, this is the biggest turnout I've ever seen for um, the electors voting because our we were um, if I remember correctly it was on camera everything was filmed our voting process our little as we sat around the table and all that stuff we were it was all filmed and we had individuals that were there to watch us as well um, who had come to see the process and I just remember one thing that stands out to me is somebody who worked there just mentioning how wow this is the biggest turnout we've ever had for um, our electors voting before. This is the biggest turnout I've ever seen. I remember yeah. that really stood out in my mind. Yeah. So, I mean, by the time this vote happened, um, you knew, because you were the Pacific time zone, you knew from votes happening in the Eastern time zone that this is, this strategy was not going to work. Um, but you still went through it anyway. So why did you go through with it? What was the, what was the reason to go through with it when you knew it was going to achieve what it was supposed to achieve? The reason is because we had made uh, promises to every Republican elector we had spoken to. We had told them that we were going to put country before party. And when you make that promise, and it's based on the Constitution, the highest law of the land in my mind, um, yeah, you have no other moral choice. It was still hard to break the state pledge, but there is a higher law, and I believe that's what we were following. Um, and, and that's really where, where I was coming from. So that's what always struck me about your story is that you were clearly being faithful both to uh, 
um, the pledge that you had made, but also to the people who had elected you. Um, and so this name that we typically use to talk about people like you, faithless electors, is really an unfair description in this context. It's insulting. <laughs> insulting. Yeah. Yeah. LJ? For me, it's just once you, when you say you're going to do something, you should make sure that you go through with it. And similarly to what Brett has been saying, it's just, if you say you're going to do something, you keep those promises and you hold on to that. Right. And and for all three of you, this was not going to be costly, uh, costless because by the end of the year, the the state had decided that they were going to bring a civil action against you four, um, you three plus the other one, um, who had voted contrary to the pledge, and um, find you $1,000 each for exercising your discretion to vote contrary to the to the vote of the people in your district. Were you surprised when the, uh, when the, when the judge issued that $1,000 fine against you? Did, they, did you think that, that maybe they would you know, show some compassion or understanding or at least understanding about the weird election that this year had been? Brett? Let's start with Brett. I was ecstatic because I knew what it meant. It was going to be the first time in the history of the United States where an elector had been penalized under a state law, and it would, we would have an opportunity to see if that law is truly constitutional or not. So I was ecstatic when they find us. Dove, what was your first thought? My first thought was, my gosh, they, they're actually going through with this. <laughs> I was surprised. Yeah. Uh, LJ? It was just when we got it, when it came in the mail for us, I was just like, well, there it is. It was something that we had, we had expected. It was an outcome that, you know, we knew was possible. And I I was not surprised when we received it. I remember my mother was quite panicked. She was like, they really did it. They really did. And I was like, yes, mom, they did. And that was, I remember that being a very funny moment. And I mean, $1,000 is $1,000. I mean, there was this, this is not small potatoes, right? I mean, it's not like you're just going to be able to write a check and walk away. That is correct. Especially, um, I come from a very, I come from a very big family, um, that, you know, lived constantly paycheck to paycheck. I, and there was a period where we were homeless when I was in high school and I was the only one who was working. And so a thousand dollars is definitely something that we didn't, it's not something that my family or myself would ever see as small or light. Um, Dove, what was your reaction to that size? Well, I knew that they had sent me this pledge and they had said that if they were going to do this to me, but I couldn't believe that they had actually done it. Because you thought that they would understand why you did what you did? I thought they would just blow it off. <laughs> but, mm. but apparently they, they take it very seriously. So, so, yeah. Yeah, and Brett, I mean, you've been... With us at every stage of this litigation, you said you were happy. You were happy because you knew that at least now there was a clear claim that you would have to be able to challenge this whole system and that it would not be possible for a court to ignore it by something like standing or some other reason why they weren't going to consider the case. Is that what you meant by being excited? 
exactly. Um, I personally don't believe there should be open questions on how we elect our president. We, we should have most of them figured out by now. <laughs> and I think this is one that has avoided that over, over our history and needs to be answered, bottom line. Um, and we have a Republican, uh, and a Republican um, Secretary of State. So I, I'm pretty sure that's why we got the fines. Um, the Washington State Legislature and Senate have since changed the law. Now in Washington State, if you are an elector and you don't vote for the person who won the state, then you will be removed and replaced. and Your vote will not be counted. Automatically. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. Which is astonishing if you think about, you know, a case of a candidate dying prior to um, the Electoral College voting like Horace Greeley. But the law says that the vote must still go for Horace Greeley. Um, then what happens? Because Congress has already said it's not going to take those votes, um, and so it could be a real mess because you don't have humans in the middle of this process. Um, well, you know, you've been fighting for a long time to resolve this question. Uh, we're recording this at the end, um, of the third week of April. Um, by the end of June, I'm pretty confident the Supreme Court will have finally answered your question. We have an argument scheduled on the 13th of May, and they work hard to finish um, by uh, June typically, but maybe this year it'll have to be by July, but um, it will certainly be before the next election. Um, and so I've just got to say, first of all, how honored I am to be able to have a chance to take your case to the court. Um, and secondly, how grateful I am that you would stand out, stand up, and try to get this question answered, um, at least regardless of how it comes out, at least so we know clearly going into the next election what the rules are. Um, and most importantly, for the integrity that each of you has shown in this process, I've worked hard to try to disabuse people of this label, faithless electors. Um, and I think the story that you tell and that more people will come to understand as this case becomes more and more familiar, evinces exactly why there's no faithlessness here. It's just a faith to something deeper than the automatic operation of this electoral system. So thank you all for taking some time to talk to us. If you want to say one or two things before we end, I'm happy to do that. Dev, do you want to say something before we close off? Well, I wanted to find out from Brett what happened in Colorado. <laughs> it's it's a long thing. I'll show you the video later on. Yeah, but you should tune in to the podcast, which we will be doing next week um, with the Colorado electors. They'll tell you their story then. Um, Brett, do you want to say something as we close off? Uh, yes. I mean, one thing I want to do is thank you for, for taking our case uh, from the very first level. Um, you've you and Mr. Jason Harrow have, have done an amazing job fighting for us, and I genuinely, genuinely appreciate it. The, the uh, only other thing I want to say is everybody watch out for, for LJ. She's going to be a senator or a governor or president one day. Mark my words now. I will look prophetic in about 20, 30 years. <laughs> um, uh, LJ, why don't you tell us um, one or two words before we end? Um, thank you to Brett, of course. He's always been... Um... He's always been, uh, what do you call it? He's always, since the start of this, he's always been an individual that I looked up to for what he chose to do and the way that he was able to rally and plan all of this. And I know that, you know, he may not have been the only person working on it, but he was the start. He was the person who planted the seeds for everything to go into motion. 
And of course, a thank you to you for taking our case and for sitting down and having these conversations with us. Um, I think the last thing I'd like to state, though, is just when it came to that election and that day when there were so many people who were tuning in and who were listening to us during our during the day that we voted, um, people were listening, people were paying attention. And I feel like that's so important. And I hope to see more of that in the future, more people being interested in the process and something that they, a lot of individuals, I feel like when it comes to electoral college, they don't know how it necessarily works. And having more people sit and pay attention and see it is it for what it is, is very important. And just getting out and being active in your election process is so important, especially for our younger generation and for our, the future of our country. It's absolutely true. If younger people voted at the same proportion as older people, the history of American politics since the 1970s would be radically different, radically different. And, um, and of course, so that's really what's so important. And, you know, uh, LJ, to have, you know, you in, in this case is really important because obviously you speak for a generation which um, is increasingly at risk because of our politics. Um, we so equal citizens took this case. Obviously, Jason Harrow and I took this case um, after it had uh, been clear they were going to fine you. But you guys were represented by an extraordinary group of lawyers um, uh, through this process, who were defending you and making sure that as you took your steps, you were not going to be tripped or, um, um, or or accosted. In Colorado, in fact, there was a threat of criminal prosecution against one of the electors. But Sumir Singla and Jonah Harrison. Um, uh, and was Hunter Hunter Abel with you guys at the time? I don't remember. Um, and, um, yeah. Um, so these lawyers have been with us through the whole time, and um, they've helped us frame the case and to build the argument and to and to really figure out how to present it in a way that makes it the most compelling. And so that's what I'm doing 24-7 between now and May 13th, when um, we will, by telephone, <laughs> be having an oral argument. I'm joking that's the only time... I will make an oral argument to the Supreme Court in my pajamas. That's not true. I will be I will be fully and appropriately dressed, but um, it's going to be a kind of odd um, presentation to be making it to justices on the telephone. But I'm honored, and I'm sure um, uh, we're going to have an answer. And I'm optimistic we have an answer that affirms the great work that you did. Um, so thank you so much, all of you. Thank you. That's the end of this episode. In the next episode, Jason Harrow, my co-counsel and colleague, will interview the electors who he'll be representing in the Supreme Court, in the case Colorado versus Baca, the second case that will be argued on May 13th. The story there is similar, but it's important in uh, how it's different. And so you'll hear those differences and a little bit about how those three electors got into the case. These podcasts are produced by EqualCitizens.us. You can find us on the web at EqualCitizens.us and find this podcast at EqualCitizens.us slash another way. There's a place there to share the podcast and to give us your feedback and your ideas. Please do both and share this broadly. After next week's episode, we'll have an episode about the oral argument and then we'll uh, have an episode where we'll reflect a little bit about what the oral argument was like and what we learned from the questions in the oral argument. So stay tuned. That's all for this episode. Thank you very much. This is Larry Lessig from EqualCitizens.us. Be well. <laughs>